Professor Anthony Grayling, welcome to my podcast. Oh, thank you for having me. Uh, you have written a fantastic book, I think, on the history of philosophy, the complete history of philosophy that has just come out in Swedish. And uh, we're going to talk about philosophy a lot, of course, but I want to stir- start somewhere else. I want to start with your personal story. What brought you into philosophy in the first place? Well, I have to take a step back and explain that uh, my parents, although British, um, were working, or my father was working uh, abroad in Africa. Mm-hmm. And we lived in what is now Zambia and in Malawi. Uh, and in those days, so this is the 1950s, 1960s, they were very remote. They were they were very cut off. It took a long time, for example, to go back to the UK on leave. You had to travel four days on the train and get a ship that took two weeks <laughs> to mm-hmm. get back because air travel was too expensive. My father used to used to travel back to the UK by air for on business reasons. But if the whole family went, then we had to do that. So it was pretty isolated. There was no television. Uh, to get the BBC World Service was uh, complicated because the sound quality wasn't good. And so we read a lot. And we had... Um, a set of encyclopedia at home, which when I was a small boy, I used to page through with absolute fascination, absolutely loved it. And in particular, I was attracted to these um, visages, these faces, Mm -hmm. bearded faces of great iconic figures in our civilization, Plato, Socrates, and so on. Uh, You know, I heard the names and I saw the, the images and I really wanted to know more. And so I tried to make sense of what the encyclopedias said about them. And then when I was 12 years old, finally, I got a ticket to the grown-up part of the library in this little local town called Indola that we lived in, in Zambia. And um, this library was very eccentric because it had an amazing collection of, very disparate collection of books left to it by people who had gone out you know, to Africa to run the empire there mm. and who had died of tropical diseases. And therefore, their books had gone into the library. And this library, amazingly, had a complete set of the works of Plato. Mm. So there I was, a 12-year-old boy, very excited to see the complete works of Plato, and I took down one of the volumes and opened it, and it fell open at the first page of a dialogue called The Carmodies. Carmodies is a dialogue, a very early dialogue of Plato's, about continence, Mm self-restraint. And I began to read it, and it's very accessible, and I understood it. And... It exhilarated me, and I thought, if these great figures of our culture can dedicate their lives to discussing questions of this kind, then I'm going to as well. So that was when the spark really took hold. And you were 12 years old at that time. Yeah, it really got me going. Quite quite soon afterwards, I found for sixpence, so it would now be just a couple of pennies in uh, new money terms, uh, the biographical history of philosophy by George Henry Lewis, Mm-hmm. He was the consort of George Eliot, the novelist. Um, and it's a, it's a rather good book. I mean, it was you know, written and published in the 1850s, so it's, it's uh, sort of very out of date. But it was a history of philosophy, started with Thales and went, went up to Auguste Comte, who was the very latest thing in philosophy at that time. 
had happened that G.H. Uh, Lewis thought that Comte brought philosophy to an end because sociology mm. was the great successor of philosophy. But it was, a, it was a rather, you know, entertaining, good account. I must have read that book about 15 times. I've still got a copy, that copy, and it has fallen apart. I read it so many times when I was a schoolboy. Mm. But then, of course, I went on to read Russell and, uh, and so on. Yeah, but, but still, if, if, if we stay with you as a 12-year-old boy, you are growing up in this African little town, right? What, what exactly are your parents doing there? Well, my father was a banker, mm -hmm. so he was uh, uh, in, in charge of the um, Standard Chartered Bank uh, operation there. He was the chief um, of the operation in Malawi. Now, by the time we moved to Blantyre, Malawi, uh, he was in, in charge of the country's banking operations on, mm. on behalf of Standard Chartered Um, and my mother was, uh, you know, uh, uh, looked after, well, gave orders to the servants is, is really what her main occupation was. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So you, you grew up in a privileged home, so to speak. Yes, it, it was very, yes, it was very bourgeois, I suppose you might say. Now, my father was fascinated by history and read a lot. And my mother was fascinated by novels and she read uh, a lot of literature but also one of her favorites was detective stories Agatha Christie and so on and she loved to be able to work out who the murderer was so mm. she loved logic deduction she loved working things out and if an author played a trick and introduced a sort of deus ex machina right at the very end of the novel, so you couldn't possibly work it out. She would be very cross because it wasn't logical. <laughs> so I think an, an interest in, in um, a wider you know, sense of the world through history, through culture, and, and a sense of logical rigor somehow or other percolated down from these parents of mine. That's fantastic. Um, what was it like growing up in this kind of town? I mean, what kind of school did you go to? Well, my brother and sister and I mainly went to boarding schools. Mm -hmm. uh, so we had, um, for example, I was sent away to school when I was boarding school when I was eight, and I was sent down to South Africa. So it was a very long way away. It was a four-day journey on the train to mm -hmm. get to school. Can you imagine? That oh, was, it was quite, wow. quite a long way um, to to a prep school. And uh, then later on, I went to a school in uh, Rhodesia, which became Zimbabwe, southern, yeah. southern Rhodesia as well. Um, uh, we were in northern Rhodesia. And uh, so, so boarding schools, a mixture of schools, who moved around quite a lot. And mainly, I think, uh, the result of that was since most of the people who went out to Africa to teach, especially to places like Zambia and Malawi and, and Zimbabwe, were people who weren't quite making the grade you know, in Britain, uh, it meant that the teaching wasn't of the greatest quality. So I think we were, we were autodidact. We taught ourselves through reading. Mm. And that is, of course, by far the best education. Mm. Although if you have good teachers, since teaching, the very, very best teaching is not about imparting something to somebody, but about uh, giving a direction and giving inspiration, making people want to teach themselves, but helping them to do it in a more organized and structured way. That was the thing which, uh, at that age anyway, I kind of lacked. So, so my reading was completely Catholic. I read absolutely everything I could get my hands on and, and loved and soaked it all up. But I should quite like to have gone to a school, I suppose, where after a bit somebody had given a bit more direction to it because that would have saved time later. Mm, I see. 
Um, you, did you ever learn any local languages? Yes, I did. I, I was able to swear completely <laughs> fluently in both uh, Chibemba and Chinyanja, the two languages of the countries we were in, and I was able to get by in them. There was, a, there was in, in that part of Africa at that time a sort of lingua franca, which was known as Chilapalapa, or um, much, much less uh, uh, appealingly, it was known as Kitchen Kaffa. So it was a, a language that was spoken pretty widely in our parts of Africa, rather as in Kenya, a little bit further north, um, people spoke Swahili fairly widely, mm-hmm. or a Kitchen version of Swahili. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, f- for how long did you stay in Africa before you came to, uh, to England? Well, I was there all the way through my childhood and uh, first part of my teenage years. My father retired when I was about, I think, 17, 16 or 17. Mm-hmm. Um, he had been a really enthusiastic Rotarian, so part of the Rotary Club. In fact, he'd been president of uh, the uh, Rotary uh, Club twice and had been a big player in the Rotary International and he and my mother had this idea that they would go and live in La Jolla in California, which is where the headquarters of the Rotary International is. And friends of his, American friends of his, based there, were going to make it possible for them to, you know, go and, and, um, and settle there. But um, just uh, very, very shortly after my father retired, uh, they had moved down and rented a house temporarily. They were going to spend some time on the coast down in South Africa. And um, this sort of double tragedy happened in, in the family. My sister was murdered yeah, by somebody it. she just, um, we, we think, just married. Or then nobody was ever actually, he was put on trial, but no, no, nobody was ever found guilty of it. He, he, he went free from this. Yeah, he did, yeah, yeah. So that, that was a very shocking thing, obviously. But what, what made it much worse was that my mother, who was ill at the time, because she had a heart complaint, and she and my father had to go and identify my sister's body, which had been in a river for some weeks before it was found. Oh. Uh, and my mother had a heart attack and died. So, but, so but, she but, died as well. Yeah. So we lost our mother and sister, uh, you know, at the same time mm. pretty well. And my father, of course, completely devastated. So my brother and I, I have this older brother, uh, of whom I'm extremely fond, uh, we're very close, um, he, he and I had to, to uh, as we say, mop and prop. You know, we had to look after my father, who was yeah. completely devastated. My father's own mother, my grandmother, had died earlier that same year. So I mean, he was, you know, oh. sort of wiped out with this awful thing, series of things yes, that of happened. Course. How old were? How old was your father at this time? So he was just uh, 60, just over 60. He retired mm-hmm. at the age of 60. So and 60. your sister, when she died, was killed? She was 27. And your mother? Uh, my mother was uh, fifty-two. Mm. Yeah, oh, and I what was a tragedy. I, I was in England. The, the, this all happened in Africa while I was still uh, out in Africa, mm-hmm. and uh, a, a very interesting, odd thing happened, which was that my my brother had to look after my father, and make the arrangements for funeral, and had to get an air ticket for me and telegram me and get me out there for the for the funeral and so on, and. Um, he did it all, he organised it all, and then was very badly affected by it afterwards. He became very depressed and struggled with it for, for a long time afterwards. Um, I, I uh, wasn't able to cope with it really for, for a long time either, I don't mm. think ever. I don't think my brother and I would ever really you know, cope with the thought of what had happened to our sister. 
Mm. It's just so difficult to think about for very long at all, you know, to have you know, somebody stabbed to death. It's just uh, very difficult to imagine. Of course. Do, do you have any idea of the, why this happened? Well, my sister, who was the oldest of, of us, was born in, a, in rather primitive conditions during the war, Second World War, in Africa, in a very ill-equipped, small, you know, bush hospital. Mm-hmm. And um, it was a terribly difficult labor. My mother was a very, very petite woman, very small woman. Very difficult, very, very long labor. She mm. should really have had a cesarean. But of course, in those days, that was a difficult procedure to do. So my sister was uh, was a forceps delivery. Mm-hmm. And the forceps crushed her skull and damaged the motor centers of her brain. So she had a she was quite spastic in her upper body. She had a lot of tremors and couldn't control her hands properly until she was 20, at which age she had an operation in Newcastle in England. The neurologist there developed a technique for uh, freezing irritant brain cells to stop them um, disturbing. And so she was cured completely on the right-hand side of her body, left-hand side of her body, and about... 85% 85% on the right-hand side of her body. She had a very slight tremor in her right arm and, and right side. Mm-hmm. But this this was uh, like a miracle to be released from, you know, this terrible physical disability, which meant she couldn't write properly or... You know, she was completely normal otherwise mm-hmm. um, and, and intelligent. Intellectually and so completely normal. Yeah, 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 intellectually completely normal, emotionally not. Now, this was the problem because she had no boyfriends and she'd mm-hmm. always been terribly self-conscious and embarrassed and had no social life. So being liberated from this at that age, she sort of went mad and and mm. uh, had all these affairs and and then she fell in love with a married man and the married man wouldn't leave his wife and so she tried to commit suicide i mean you know the mm. the next half dozen years were a sort of maelstrom of of mm. um of difficulty wow. then she met this man um very much older than herself and within about two months of meeting they married mm. and they went to live in johannesburg in south africa and it was within about two months of that that uh, he reported her missing. So then there was this huge police hunt and, you know, all sorts of things came out uh, from the police investigating that my parents didn't know about and they were very shocked to find out what my sister had been up to. You know? And so it was just so awful for everybody and the whole thing mm. was terrible. And then her body was found and he was arrested and he was put on trial. He always said that he was innocent. The murder weapon, because she'd been stabbed seven times, each one fatal, in the chest with a big kitchen knife and uh, from their kitchen. And, you know, so Mm. he was put on trial. He was acquitted, uh, lack of evidence. My father was convinced that he was guilty. Uh, I've never, I don't know, because I'm no not privy to the facts or anything. And funny enough, I've never really thought about the, the perpetrator I've just thought about the fact that anybody who commits a murder, anybody who kills another person, doesn't just kill a person, but all the people who cared about that person have a life sentence. They live with the fact that this Mm. happened. It is a really dreadful thing to do. Mm, Of course. Do you know anything of what happened to this man later in life? Nothing. No, no, we'd completely lost contact. Mm. 
Of course. What about your brother? You you say you have a close relation still? Yes. So my, my brother, he yeah, he's five years older than I am. And so when we were small, that's a big difference when you're small. Mm. So when I was eight at my prep school, he was, uh, you know, 12, 13. He was uh, head of, head boy of the school and a prefect and a great man and captain of cricket and, you know, big hero in the school. And I was a great sort of hero worshipper of his, really. I, I thought he was absolutely marvellous. Um, still do, <laughs> and then at our big school, I was in the you know the first year in the boarding school, and he was in the, in the top year, and he was again a prefect and first team rugby, first team cricket, or all that big hero in the school. In fact, at one point, I had to polish his shoes and make his bed because there was a, a system where the junior boys had to do this for senior boys. You know. <laughs> and for all the, those years, we used to call one another by our surnames. Okay. okay. Didn't, we didn't, I didn't call him John. I called him Grayling. <laughs> <laughs> because this was the tradition at these ridiculous boarding schools. Yeah. And then um, uh, he went off and, and he went and he lived in Swaziland and, and uh, I was in England and we didn't see one another for many, many years. And then these tragedies happened in, in our family and they brought us back together. Just uh, a f um, little while after this had happened, he went, he met and married an Australian. His second wife is an Australian woman and he went to live in Australia. So he lives in Sydney, um, but we we keep in a lot of close contact. I go to Australia as often as I can, and he comes to the UK. We spend as much time together as we can. We Zoom now, you know, all of these wonderful electronic things uh, mm. every week. And we're, we're very, very good friends. Fantastic. Part of the reason is that 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 world, the world of the 1940s and 1950s in Africa, at the very end of the British Empire, you know, mm. out there, is a lost world quite rightly lost mm. in my view but it's a lost world and that experience was one that relatively few people have see if you dig into the nuance of it uh, Brits who went to Africa to South Africa or Rhodesia they went out there to settle or to Kenya Kenya was a colony as well like, like mm. Rhodesia but the parts of Africa that we were in the bits that became Zambia and Malawi were not colonies, they were protectorates. And the Brits who went there were expats, you know, they were out there on contract for a length of time. It happened that my father so loved it, my mother hated it, but my father mm -hmm. so loved it that he just wanted to stay there forever, you know. So we were never really settled out there, and uh, it was uh, an experience, therefore, that rather few people had, I suppose. He and I remember it together and can talk about it. And there's nobody else to talk about it to. Mm, so yes. when one of us goes, one of us dies, the other one is going to be, you know, the remainder from something completely have you off. Have you thought of writing a, sort of your, your, your memoirs from this time? So about 10 years ago, my, my then publishers commissioned me to write a memoir about my early life in Africa. Mm. And uh, I accepted the commission. I took the royalty in France. <laughs> I've just found I could not do it. Mm. I tried. It's the only book that I've never been able to write. Mm. Because just of couldn't this tragedy, yeah, I just maybe. couldn't get around that. I couldn't see behind it. Mm. I couldn't recover that uh, experience. No. I could see bits of it and, you know, the, the, there are bits of it which are personally important to me, like the, the, my first girlfriends and they, they're important to me mm. and, and certain experiences I had uh, very early on. I'll tell you one, actually, yeah. which, which I think was quite formative. So in 1957, there was a, a flu pandemic in the world. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, it was called the it was called the Asian flu. Well, then all flu is Asian, but it just happened to be called Asiatic flu, and it was a pandemic, um, not quite as serious as the one that we're in the middle of as we speak. Mm. But the, what one result was that it closed the school that I was at, and all all the boys in the school went home, except for me, because my parents at that time were abroad. I think they'd gone back to England. My father used to go back, we had these very generous home leave um, arrangements. He used to go back for six months every three years or something. And he'd gone back, their parents got back to England. My brother had a friend, so he was able to go and stay with friends. And I had this flu very badly, and I was left in the school on my own, in this boarding school. And I was looked after by the matron at night. But in the daytime, a, a nurse came from a nearby nursing home to take my temperature and make my bed and put her cool hand on my brow and so on. Mm -hmm. She must have been about 20. I was eight. Anyway, I fell in love with her, mm -hmm. as one does. You know, Confucius says, doesn't he, that a man who wants to marry a nurse must be a patient, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, I was uh, uh, very much in love with her. So I proposed to her, asked her to marry me. Now, this, How old were you? I eight. I was eight. She was 20. <laughs> Wonderful. And th th this is one of those moments in life which could have, you know, gone either way. It could have been a fork. Because if she'd laughed at me and said, oh, you silly little boy or something, mm -hmm. it would have made me a misogynist perhaps, I don't know, or given me a very bleak view of women. But instead she was incredibly sweet. She said to me, she said, oh, she said, that's so lovely of you to ask me, really, really lovely of you. But there is a bit of an age difference, so we're going to have to wait and see. Now, that was <laughs> such a lovely answer. <laughs> Of course, I, I thought at the age of eight that it was an acceptance. <laughs> but it made me feel then, as I've felt ever since, that fundamentally women are the true human beings. You know, they are. <laughs> what a wonderful story. <laughs> but have you, have you ever travelled back to Africa? I mean, now in your life? Well, I went back uh, um, after these uh, tragedies, uh, which happened in 1969, so it's a long time ago now. Uh, I, I went back twice after that to see my father, because my father used to, used to come home, he used to come back to the UK every year. He used to spend the summers in the UK, watch the cricket and, and all mm. that kind of thing. And then when winter started to come, he would go back to Africa. Because after my uh, the, the, these events, uh, he's, he's sort of dropped anchor there, I suppose, I suppose to be near where they were or feeling a bit, he was on his own, his sons were far away and, you know. But he, he, he so he would divide his time between there and, and England until he got, too old to travel really mm. and he had a, a slight stroke as a result of being up in an aircraft you mm -hmm. know the pressure in the aircraft so i went out a couple of times to see him in the 1980s and then he he died um and i didn't go back until a couple of years ago mm -hmm. i said to my brothers my brother in australia and not terribly well so Even you know when he comes over to the UK to to see me uh, and we do things together, it's quite a business for him to that long journey and mm. the jet lag and everything. So I thought, okay, let's meet in the middle. Let's meet in Cape Town, mm. and uh, Cape Town was where this um, prep school was that we went to. Uh -huh. And let's uh, revisit one or two spots and and go to my mother's grave and all that. So she's buried in Cape Town. Yeah, she is. Yeah, well, this because this happened. They, they, when all this business mm. happened, 
with my sister being in Johannesburg, my parents were in a place called Hermanus, which is just outside Cape Town. Mm-hmm. So we did that. We met up there and we spent a couple of weeks uh, traveling around. And, and it was half a century since we'd, we'd been there. In fact, Fantastic. It was a, just amazing. Did you Hardly recognize changed. it? Yeah, oh, it? yeah, yeah. It hadn't changed very much, no. except in a good way, which was I remember that there was a Lido in a part of Cape Town called Sea Point. Yeah. A Lido, lots of swimming pools and yeah, what have you. I've been there, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And uh, um, to, to see all the people bathing there now who mm. were not allowed to bathe there, mm. you know, when, I was a, when I first remembered it or saw it, it was wonderful to see that, to see that change. But then uh, one or two people that my brother knew who had stayed on in South Africa, we went to visit them, and they live in these walled compounds. Mm. Very beautiful, lovely houses and gardens and everything, but in you know behind barbed wire, mm-hmm. because this is a, still a very unequal society, and yeah. still most of the wealth, most of the assets, most of the power lies in very few and mainly white hands. Mm. No, I, I've been in Cape Town quite a lot actually, because I have uh, I love the place and mm-hmm. I have uh, a few Swedish friends who live there mm-hmm. permanently. So I rented a house in Camps Bay. Yeah. Lovely, yeah, yeah. And uh, I, yeah, I love the town. And we actually just published a book about South Africa and the uh, sort of political development in South Africa now. Mm. It's, it's, they have tough times, obviously, yeah. now. Yeah. Um, uh, after Mandela's um, death and, and what's, what, what's followed after him. Yeah. But I, I, I love the country. It's, it's, it's so beautiful. Have you been up to the game parks and the Kruger yeah. National Park? Yeah. You? And uh, yeah, and I rented a car and traveled down to uh, what do you call that in in English, the where the Good uh, Hopes um, Udan is it called that? The Cape of Good Hope. Yes, exactly, yeah, yeah. exactly. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes, and um, Stellenbosch and all Stellenbosch, this. Stellenbosch, <laughs> yeah, yeah, with the wineries there. Yes. yes. Well, the prep school that my brother and I were at was in Newlands, Rondebosch, that part of uh-huh. just just under the. Um, bit of the mountain where the University of Cape Town is. Because later, um, but, but between finishing school uh, in Rhodesia, as I went to boarding school in Rhodesia, and going to university in England, I um, spent six months at Cape Town University mm-hmm. and got into trouble because I worked for the student newspaper and wrote an article about a man called Bill Hoffenberg, who was a, an immunologist who had participated with Christian Barnard in the very first heart transplants. Mm. And he had made a, a speech in public saying that you could transplant the heart of a black man into a white man and vice versa yeah. because there are no difference between people. The race, this whole idea of race is just mm. a nonsense. And he was deported from South Africa for saying this. This was really? back in, well, this was 1968 and it was the apartheid era, you know. And I wrote an article about it on the front page of the university magazine with a byline. And a couple of days later, it was a blazing hot day, two men turned up in, in trench coats and trilbies uh, and very thick um, South African accents. And they asked for me, and I should have said, oh, he's not here. But I said, oh, that, that, that's me. And they said, they said uh, go back to your own country you're subversive and so on this is you know people from the security services that was a very frightening experience i can imagine and isn't it the case that it was uh, that some kind of christian organization in south africa developed some kind of 
theological document arguing for for the apartheid system. Yeah, the Dutch Reformed Church. Exactly. Uh, yes, they quoted the Bible, uh, saying that the sons of of was it Ham would always be drawers of water and hewers of wood. They would always be servants. So the the, the sons of Ham were the black people. So they have theological arguments for apartheid. Yeah. Basically. But my, my anti-racism started very, very early, actually, because we, 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 had, um, we had servants, of, of, of course, living where we did. Mm. And, and they one, were black. Yeah, they were black. And one of our, our servants, a sort of head servant, was a man called Johnny Penza, whom I absolutely adored. I loved him. My, my parents were, were very remote. My father was a kind man, but a very absent person psychologically I, mean, I hardly knew him at all really and my mother didn't like children i can quite understand why but you know, they can be <laughs> annoying uh, and so i had very little to do with her either so i was really looked after and brought up by our servants and i was they were my family and i i loved them and i especially loved johnny penza and he told me a story one day which had a big impact on me so i can't remember how old i was but maybe again about seven eight something like that and the story is this that god decided one day that he wanted all the people of the world to be white like him. Now, okay, just starting with that, okay. <laughs> okay. So he sent the animals to call the people of the earth to come and bathe in Lake Nyasa, Lake Malawi. This is a beautiful, you know, long uh, inland sea. And the cheetah, which is the swiftest of the animals, went and called the people of the north. And they all came down to the lake and they bathed and they all became white like God. The hare went to the people of the east. Now, the hare is not as swift as the cheetah, so by the time it had delivered its message and all the people of the east had come to the lake, all the waters had been churned up and were muddy, so when they bathed in the waters, they came out brown. But the chameleon went to the people of the south, and the chameleon is very slow and tentative. You know how it moves very slowly. Mm -hmm. So by the time he gave his me message and the people of the south had come to the lake, there was nothing left but damp sand. And all they could do was press the palms of their hands and the soles of their feet on the sand. And that is why a black man's palms of his hand are pink like a white man's. Yes. Wonderful story. No, it made me weep. I mean, isn't it a cruel story? It's a terrible story. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> That yeah, the black, that this was beautiful a, in its yeah, it's a beautiful story, but it's the black people's, the African people's own story yeah. about how this happened as a result of what they were all the nonsense they were taught and the pictures they were shown and so on by the missionaries. It makes me weep to think of it. Yeah, but I mean, how how would you, as a young boy interested in philosophy, how did you cope with apartheid? How did you understand the apartheid system? Well, I mean, I did, uh, uh, I did understand it. My mother was, a, was a, a, a horrible racist and she was always, you know, said terrible things of, about uh, the Africans. And I remember once I, I was in the car uh, with my, uh, being driven somewhere by my father's chauffeur. My, my, my father's chauffeur was an African man all the chauffeurs, by, by the way, for all the sort of big wigs, in, big frogs in the small puddle, that, that was uh, that bit of Africa, called themselves James because, you know, that's the traditional name for a chauffeur in England. They were all called James. Uh, well, so he was called James. And he was driving me somewhere and there was, you know, crowds of pedestrians and cyclists and he was hooting and hooting, get them out of the way. And one cyclist wouldn't get out of the way. And he hooted and hooted and drew up alongside the cy cyclist and he shouted out of the window of the car 
Kafuna kufa, which means do you want to die in in Chinyanja? Kafuna kufa, you bloody black bastard. I said to him, oh, my God, James, how can you say such a thing like that? Now, he's completely shocked, rigid, not only because of what he said, but because he himself mm. is a black man, and mm. he was shouting at another black man and calling him that. And I realized that, that what, he had, what he was saying, because I mean, it was somebody else's language, you know, he was using a bit of English that he'd heard somebody else use, what he was saying he had heard from my mother, because my mother said things like that. Mm-hmm. She was a dreadful racist. My father was not. My father was always kind and fair and uh, always interested in, uh, you know, Africa and the Africans and their interests and needs. And he was always kind and good to, to, our, to our servants. I mean, seriously so. Mm. Even though, you know, they were our servants and they were paid nothing and they worked long hours and so on. I look back on it now and I think, good, you know, we really exploited them horribly. But they they were more my family and I and I what, what one difficult thing that I had about trying to write a memoir was that when I was very very small, uh, the house our house was divided in in two. There were two zones. There was a zone which was warm and friendly and full of laughter and nice things to eat and what have you. And then there was a zone that was cold and quiet. And if I made a noise there, I was told off. Now, the latter zone was where my parents were reading their books or their newspapers. And the former zone was the kitchen and the laundry and where all the servants were. And that was where I was happy. And I didn't know, and in fact, I didn't know what I was until one day I realized that I didn't have the same color skin as the people who were nice. I understand. Yeah, so that was... I mean, that's why I'm asking, it must have been very hard to understand the apartheid system and how they rejected the black people when you experienced so much love from that community. Yeah, yeah, it was very difficult. Did you ask someone, did you ask your parents, why do we live under an apartheid system? Well, I I never discussed it with them. Um, Mm. uh, Again, for various reasons. I remember on one occasion... Um, I had seen at the end of a corridor this man, Johnny Penza. I should just mention, by the way, that Johnny Penza was our cook and head servant. And I used to suffer terribly from night terrors when I was small. Mm -hmm. So I would scream and scream and have nightmares and things. And he used to sleep on the floor next to my bed to keep me company. I mean, that's Mm. what he was like. I saw him at the end of a corridor and I ran down the corridor and I threw my arms around his neck to give him a hug. I probably just had seen him a few minutes before in the kitchen or something, but I just, out of just sheer, you know, affection, I ran and gave him a hug. And my sister, Jennifer, was walking by me and she took me aside and she said to me, you mustn't do that. You don't hug, touch touch the servants. You don't hug them or touch them. You mustn't do that. And I felt, oh, God, I've done something wrong. You know, well, why is it wrong to do that? I couldn't really understand it, but then I knew that in the cold part of the house that wasn't, you didn't do that and it shouldn't be reported there and so on, you know. So so I was very conscious of the fact that the, the general picture was there's a big division between us and there are things that you don't do and say. Now, we used to go down to the Cape on holiday. We used to go to Fishhook and Simonstown and, mm-hmm. you know, Musenberg and places like that down in the Cape uh, for um, occasional holidays every couple of years. And... When we did, and I saw the sign saying, 
neat for blankets, you know, only for whites and mm. uh, and the segregation in buses and things like that. I used to find that disgusting, a really appalling. Mm-hmm. Okay, and and this twelve-year-old boy discovers Plato. That's where we started, and uh, that leads you into philosophy. What's the next? What's the next step? I mean, what what do you what do you read? after Plato. Well, as I mentioned, I'd come across and I bought for, for you know, this battered old copy of the George Henry Lewis yeah, exactly. biographical history yeah. philosophy, which I read and read and reread and reread and reread. I was just hungry to, to, to find out more and get more because even though uh, we had this complete works of, of Plato, it was practically the only philosophy in the library. Mm. And, and by the way, it was in the Jewish translation of Plato, which is the Bowdlerized one. It leaves out all the, you know, the naughty bits. Um, <laughs> I mean, it was only years later that I discovered that the comedies, it starts off with, with um, Socrates coming back from the Battle of Petidiae and he says to his friends in Athens, he says, so who is the most admired boy in Athens at the moment? And they say, oh, it's this boy, Comedies. He's so beautiful. And so Socrates says, oh, I'd like to have a look at him then. So they go to the <laughs> gymnasium and you know, gymnos means naked. So all the boys are uh, exercising naked. Uh-huh. So he, they can have a look at the boys. You see all these, old, these men. And then he says, well, I would like to know uh, if comedies has something even greater than uh, physical beauty, and that is, does he have a noble soul? So they call comedies over. Comedies comes, sits next to Socrates, and Socrates quizzes him, and they talk about continence. And Socrates says in the non-Bowdlerized version, which I only discovered much later, he says that when I look down, he says, I, I feel disturbed when I look down inside Carmody's tunic and I can see his beautiful smooth chest and so on. Mm. And Joe had left all those those bits out, obviously, as being unsuitable for philosophy. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, but, but there it was. It was the only thing there and, and there wasn't very much else. There was, you know, until I got to university and I really had, oh, the sensation of being in a library which had everything that I wanted to read, that I'd heard about mm-hmm. and I'd read, you know, paraphrases or reports of or something and it was it was there. That was just wonderful. But I'd already discovered before then, you know, but what reading I could do, that philosophy, which genuinely means inquiry, mm. and it means inquiry into anything and everything historically, it's completely inclusive. And in fact, to, to go deep into any particular problem in philosophy requires that you have a lot of equipment, that you have a broader sense, context, that there is a, an horizon of view when you deal with philosophical problems. And so you must be interested in history. You must be interested in science. You must be interested in, in mathematics and logic. You must be interested in literature because literature is... Uh, detailed case studies of moral dilemmas and mm. human experience and ambition and aspiration and so on. So you know the whole the whole uh, tranche, as it were, of of culture is is what feeds into a, a philosophical interest. Even if your interest becomes a very technical one in epistemology or philosophical mm. logic or metaphysics, still to have this more general background seems to me to be important and some of the greatest figures in uh, philosophy if you think of them had this synoptic approach mm-hmm. so what are you thinking of 
Well, you can you know, name um, Plato, Aristotle, all the way up uh, uh, Descartes. Uh, think of Russell. Think of Hume, mm. who wrote history as well as philosophy, and he wrote about economics and you know, um, and so on. No, no. I, 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 and, and then w w when you read the essays of somebody like Schopenhauer, uh, you see what breadth there is and how, how uh, the, the, the ship of philosophy sails on a great ocean of yeah. interest. Yeah. So you studied philosophy at the university yes. in, in Cape Town? No, yes, I did. Uh, well, in Cape Town, you had to do several subjects at once. So I did philosophy, psychology, and uh, um, classical studies. Mm-hmm. And French, actually. Uh -huh. So I, I did, but that was just a, the, those six months. Then um, I, I went to university in uh, in England. Now, this there's a little embarrassing thing that I have to confess to here, which is that, of course, I, I planned to go to Oxford, but I read in um, uh, I, I read a, a newspaper article about a very very new university which had just been founded, set up just a few years before. And which had become extremely popular. It become incredibly fashionable. Everybody wanted to go to it. It was said to be a tremendous party scene. <laughs> and uh, it also said in this article that it was so fashionable and forward-thinking that the girls, the undergraduates, this girl undergraduates, were um, wont to sunbathe topless on its lawns. <laughs> so I'm afraid for, for very, very, not, not very noble reasons, I thought... This sounds like the place for me. <laughs> I went off. And this was Sussex University, which was very new at that time, just a few years old. And it was very, very fashionable. Mm -hmm. And uh, it had been made so, in fact, by these beautiful twin daughters of a government minister who had chosen to go there because it was, you know, um, said to be such a party scene. And I did indeed. I had a wonderful uh, time there. It was, it was a great party scene, except it was badly interrupted, of course, by all these tragedies in the family. So I lost uh, a lot of time there. Mm. Um, but and there, there, there was, uh, uh, and everything swings and roundabouts, isn't it? Because w while I was there, even though I was enjoying the place and I was very much enjoying the courses I was doing there, because Um, Sussex University decided that it wasn't going to produce scholars, it was going to produce intellectuals. And so it required a very broad range of studies, which I loved, but I, I was dissatisfied by it because I really did want to get very serious about philosophy. So I started simultaneously a degree in philosophy at London University. Mm. Um, and I did the two undergraduate uh, uh, degrees uh, overlapping. And so w w when my Sussex studies were very badly disrupted by uh, what happened in the family and when I come back to the UK, uh, I finished the Sussex course and paid attention to the London course and finished that so that I could go on with my graduate studies. Mm. So I did two bachelor's degrees, one Sussex, one at London, uh, and then I went to Oxford. And in fact, there, there was a, a funny thing um, about the Oxford business was that I'd originally intended to go to um, Jesus College at Oxford. That's oh. where I'd applied. And Jesus College is a very small little college, you know, right in the center of Oxford. And I'd been visiting friends there, one of whom was at Magdalen College, mm -hmm. which is a great big Renaissance college with beautiful gardens, Addison's Walk, you know, mm -hmm. beautiful college. And I thought to myself, oh, I've made a bad mistake applying to Jesus because Magdalen is so much nicer. So I rang up the admissions person at Magdalen and I said to him look I, I, I'd been given this place at Jesus College uh, but I would really rather come to Magdalen so he said all right then <laughs> and that was it um, and I, you know I 
without even having to renew the application or, or anything else, wow. I went there. And, and in fact, I, I have to say that uh, in many ways, the old Oxford, because it became much more bureaucratic and, mm. and what have you. I mean, I remember um, when I was doing my doctorate at Oxford, uh, after three years, because when I was working on the doctorate, there was a book I needed, and it didn't exist. So I, I wrote it and and published it. That was the introduction to philosophical logic. I really needed that book as a, you know, to have a alongside, because I wanted a resource uh, for some of the things I was trying to argue in my uh, my dissertation. So I did. So I took a bit of extra time over the doctorate for this reason, since I had to park it right, to finish the book. That was my very first book. Mm. And your dissertation was on mathematical logic. No, it was on um, transcendental arguments in epistemology. It was on sort of Kantian approach to mm -hmm. solving problems about skepticism in epistemology. Mm -hmm. um, anyway, uh, so I'd overrun time, uh, overrun my um, scholarship, uh, state scholarship for starting a PhD. And my then supervisor, who was uh, A.J. Eyre, said, mm. what are you doing about money? And I said, well, I've started to do a bit of teaching for Morgan and, uh, you know, doing bits and pieces of writing bits of freelance journalism and so on. A couple of days later, I got a note from the president of Morgan College asking me to go and see him. And I thought, what's this about? You know, I must have done something wrong. You know, <laughs> why, mm -hmm. why have I been summoned to see the president? So I went to see him and he said, and I quote, I quote, this is exactly what he said. He said, your supervisor, Professor Eyre, says, we must give you some money. <laughs> so we will. <laughs> and that was the end of the conversation. And they gave me this McKinnon scholarship uh, for, for finishing my, my doctorate. No committees, no application forms and things. That was sort of the old Oxford where things were done on the nod, you know. Wonderful. Uh, very soon afterwards, I think, uh, but by the time I started teaching at Oxford, because I taught at St. Anne's College at Oxford for, for a number of years, um, it had already become very bureaucratic and there were committees and, you know, paperwork and God knows what else, <laughs> which I suppose is right because the old-fashioned way was a little bit too, you know, yeah, helping yeah. your friends. You know? Yeah, yeah, of yeah. course. I've just been to Oxford twice, I think. I know you have a beautiful bookstore there. Yeah, Blackwell's, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, exactly, yeah. fantastic. Yeah. But, okay, so, so your... Um, uh, your uh, doctorate was in epistemology, mm -hmm. okay, uh, and skepticism. Mm -hmm. yeah. We're actually publishing a book on skepticism quite soon by a Swedish professor of philosophy about skepticism in the history of philosophy. Yeah. It seems yeah. close to what you were doing. Or? Yes. Well, um, so the, skepticism is actually one of the things that really, really, really got me interested in, in philosophy, the skeptical problem. What, how do you define that? Uh, right, so, so th this this could be <laughs> quite a long story here if we've got breakfast organised for tomorrow. <laughs> because because uh, uh, I was impressed by um, the arguments in the Theaetetus in, in Plato about how you define knowledge. Mm -hmm. 
you know, how you have to nail down the foot of the statue so it doesn't fly away. So you have to have justification for your beliefs. Yeah, true um, beliefs that are, that are justified. Justified true beliefs, yeah, that, that model. And then thinking about the failed attempt by Descartes to find that point of certainty from which our knowledge could be rebuilt. And of course, one of the earlier um, books I read as a teenager, apart from uh, Russell's History of Western Philosophy, was his little book, The Problems of Philosophy, which begins, yeah. um, philosophy is the inquiry into whether there's anything about which we can be certain. Which, by the way, is exactly the wrong thing to say because certainty is a psychological state. It's not a relationship between a propositional attitude and a set of exactly. facts and so on. But anyway, um, so I was really interested in this this problem. And the more I thought about it, and the more, more I examined skeptical arguments, could I be dreaming? Could I be deluded by an evil demon? What about the perceptual mistakes we make? What about errors of reasoning? How do we know anything about the world? And uh, it became more and more and more pressing. And when I was an undergraduate, I read Berkeley. And I remember it was a Saturday evening in April 1969 that I had finished reading Berkeley's Principles of Human Knowledge. And I looked up from the book at the curtain and I had the most terrible feeling of dread that, uh, that the world wasn't real. I've, I've made the, the standard mistake that people make when they read Barclays to think that actually his argument is an argument for subjective idealism and that there is no such thing as an external reality. It just is all our, or mm. in the case of subjective idealism, my experiences. And it gave me a, a kind of breakdown. I mean, for months I was in a very, very shattered sort of state uh, intellectually. I remember going to see the counsellor at the university and saying, I feel dreadful, I'm terribly nervous and anxious and couldn't articulate to him that it was because I didn't think the world was real. <laughs> but what got me out of it, actually, what got me out of that state into a completely different disaster was these tragedies that happened in our family because they happened later on that same year. But or, or from the time that of that Saturday evening in, in April until these events happened in the family, uh, I was in a really dreadful state. I mean, really having a nervous breakdown. Mm. So I thought very, very, very hard about the sceptical arguments and, and uh, wrote this thesis to show how you could refute scepticism. And then out of that thesis, uh, I developed a book which I called The Refutation of Scepticism. That was my second book after the philosophical logic book. And then I turned my attention to Berkeley because I really wanted to grapple with the Berkeleyan arguments. And of course, I found out that Berkeley is a realist about the external world because it does exist independently of our experiences, kept in existence by the creative activity of the deity and blah, blah, you know. So uh, I realized that people had misread and I had misread Berkeley and there was a kind of standard uh, misunderstanding of him uh, in, in the um, unscholarly approach to him. So I wrote a book about Berkeley and, and dealt with that and then be began to, to uh, develop and articulate the uh, sort of slightly Kantian view that I'd taken in the earlier book, The Refutation of Skepticism. And I wrote a book some years later called uh, Skepticism and the Possibility of Knowledge, in which I elaborated this idea that uh, our conceptual scheme is one which licenses knowledge claims against sceptical challenges on the basis of there being very, very general propositions, like, for example, the propositions that Wittgenstein calls hinge propositions, you know, the ones that you have to accept, the undischargeable assumptions of perceptual mm -hmm. uh, experience in order that we can say things that are intelligible, that, that we can have an experience which is consistent and, and so on. Mm. 
while I was doing my doctorate, I worked with uh, um, uh, Peter Strawson, P.F. Strawson as well, uh, and he had come up with an argument in his book Individuals, which was an attempted refutation, actual refutation of skepticism, which I showed in my thesis and my work with him that it didn't work uh, quite how he wanted to do it. Mm -hmm. He was very pleased, actually, to to learn this. He was good about being being (laughs) refuted, Mm -hmm. but that it could be made to work if one adjusted it into this conceptual scheme mode that I'd come up with. But I've still been working on on this problem, and and now I'm now working on a technical book in, in philosophy. I've been working on it for years now, which takes the argument even further uh, about the nature of skepticism. So as you can see, the epistemological problem, which is the problem of philosophy, because everything else, metaphysics and, and uh, logic and even you know the questions of value like ethics and aesthetics and so on, turn on questions of, of, uh, of what we can know, the basis of our beliefs, the um, nature of our conceptual scheme, the justifications we have for assertions we make. Uh, it all turns on this really, really central. So that's so the central theme in your philosophical life, yes, you could say. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, I've worked on it constantly, <laughs> despite having been distracted into you know, writing many, many other things as well. Yeah. And I now think, because I, every, I might say every sort of five or six years, I, I get another, another step forward. I have to live a lot. And these guys who are doing stem cell research, they really got to get on with this, you know, because I still need a bit more time to get to the definitive answer because I get these insights every now and then which really seem to move the thing on. Although I now feel uh, this stuff that I've been working on these last few years, I, I feel very, very excited about. That's that's very interesting. Um, <clears throat> you know, I, I as we talked about before we started this pod, I was into um, mathematics, um, uh, theoretical computer science. So I, I studied a bit of Gödel and the incompleteness theorem and so on. And and uh, I've always been fascinated also by how much how misinterpreted misinter- that theorem is. It's been used to you know argue for a lot of things, new age things, or or you know the mind can never. Uh, a computer can never uh, be conscious, for example, because of Gödel and so on. I find those arguments not convincing. What's your what's your take on that? Well, so to to let, let, let me come at this at an angle, okay? Mm-hmm. Uh, just to give you an example of the kind of problem that we think incredibly hard in metaf- in metaphysics, because ultimately this problem, the Gödel problem, comes down also to the question of mind, reality, the mm-hmm. the possibility of, of knowledge. Um, Look at the free will determinism problem. Mm. Regarded as, to put it at its simplest and crudest, we have the problem that our whole thinking about human nature, morality, the social universe, is predicated on the idea that we can genuinely make choices. That, yeah. that we have a, free will. Yeah. Even though we are constrained in many ways by society and life and love affairs and things like that, nevertheless, ultimately we're free. And at the same time, we are physical beings in a physical universe governed by causal laws. Mm. And this seems to be a complete head-on contradiction. Contradiction, yeah. And uh, all the evidence from neurology seems to support the you know, physical deterministic kind of view. Our brains know stuff before we do. Mm, <laughs> all that yeah. stuff, you know. Okay. <coughs> now, one, there, there are various solutions to this. Of course, just to either be a determinist or to be, you know, think there's something non-physical. Mm. 
uh, the mind consistent, be a dualist or something, or to be to try and find some clever compatibilist argument, or to ask yourself the following question. Supposing something like the Kantian view is right, that the concept of causality is a structural feature of how our minds organize the phenomena, but it is something which is constitutive of our way of understanding, way of interpreting phenomena, and by definition of the contrast between phenomena and noumena, is not part of, the, of reality. Mm-hmm. And then you think to yourself, well, what's going on in quantum theory, quantum superposition, mm-hmm. entanglement, and you know, non-locality? And you know, how, well, how does the concept of causality work in quantum theory? Well, nothing like it works in the way we think no. about the world. So maybe the solution to the dilemma that we seem to have when we think about free will and determinism is that we're thinking about causality the wrong way. Because ultimately, causality is not, it's just one feature of the way that we think. So... In this work that, that I'm doing at the moment, I come up with this idea, adapting the idea of paraconsistency, you know, of how you might have what look like contradictory uh, commitments, each uh, consistently arrived at from their premises and not explosive, as they say in logic. They don't give rise to a lot of uh, further contradictions and paradoxes. And I come up with this idea, which I call laterosistency, so uh, the consistency of, of ways of thinking about things side by side. Give you an example. Suppose you have two people standing on the side of the field, and each is describing a set of events on the field. There's, one of them is a physicist, so he's talking about bodies moving at certain velocities, interacting according to the principles of mechanics, right. radiating at certain frequencies, etc. And the other person is a sociologist, and he describes it as a football match. Now, the language of football cannot be translated without remainder into the language of physics, mm. or vice versa. So here are two vocabularies about the same set of events which are lateral-assistant. They are are lateral? Lateral Lateral-assistant. It's like like consistent, but side-by-side. Lateral-assistant. Okay, yeah, I understand. So this is a a word I'm making up because the the word paraconsistent, part of the fact that it's a hybrid Greek and Latin, that doesn't matter, but but also it's now got a special meaning in logic. So I've invented this word, lateral-assistant. So they're they're each consistent discourses, internally consistent discourses. They both address the same phenomenon in some sense of same, but they're not reducible to one another. So reductionism doesn't apply there. And there, there are ways of thinking that concepts of time, tense, causality, the ontologies that we develop and commit ourselves to for different uh, domains, like the mathematical domain, special temporal domain, the domain of the past, even predicates like exists or is true and so on, differ in their semantics for different domains. Mm. And they're all lateral assistant because they're all consistently... Um, inferences drawn properly from the, the premises for that domain, the things that we accept or commit ourselves to for that domain. Now, if you think in those terms, then all the apparent difficulties that come from thinking that there is one objective reality about which we could know the truth, but it's very difficult to get it because we've got all these Gerdelian problems or mm. Cartesian problems or whatever. Or limitations of our senses yeah. and yeah. cognitive abilities. Yeah, yeah. The, the, the finite character of our, our limitations, of, of our powers of reasoning and, and perception. So the, the, this, what, what I'm suggesting to you here is that a lot of these problems dissolve 
<laughs> this is an old, you know, desire in philosophy to dissolve yeah. problems, to dissolve the free will determinism problem by saying it, it comes from the wrong premise. It comes from the, the idea that uh, there is this concept, causality, that we can't get rid of because that's the way we think about physical reality. But it isn't how we think about physical reality. Not when you dig down into yeah, so what you mean? I, I've written a, a kind of popular version of, of this theory. I just published this year a book called The Frontiers of Knowledge. Yes. And tucked away in, in that book is, in, for a more general audience and in a less technical way, is this account of how we think about what we know. It's fascinating. It reminds me a little bit of... I don't know if you've read uh, the Italian physicist Carlo Rovelli. He, he wrote yeah, yeah. a book called Helgoland, his latest book, I think, uh, about quantum physics. Yes. And he, he talks about <clears throat> that quantum physics is relational in the sense that reality manifests itself depending on what questions you ask, yes. so to speak. And yes. he has no new age interpretation of this at all. Yeah. I mean, it's, mm -hmm. not, it's not consciousness that affects reality, anything like that, but... He, it, it sounds to my ears similar to what yeah, you're yeah, saying. Yeah, yeah. Do you agree yeah, with that? Yes, 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 very, very much so, yeah. Because in this book, Frontiers of Knowledge, one thing I tackle is, I say, here's this great problem that people have about giving an interpretation of the quantum realm. Mm. But an attempt to interpret quantum phenomena is an attempt to make sense of it using concepts that only apply to the classical realm, yeah. the Newtonian realm. And they just it just doesn't compute. It just doesn't go over. You can't get the you can't get the reduction of one to the other smoothly with, without you know extra hypotheses or assumptions or ad hoc or heuristic devices or mm. something or other, you know. And this is not not appealing to emergent properties or anything like that. It's just a recognition that the the discourses, the discourse of, of uh, our ordinary way of describing the world in terms of particular persisting material objects that causally interact and so on, is not a language that can be used to mm. describe um, you know, superposition of, of quantum states or, or entanglement or anything like that. Uh, and you're just not going to get that translation going. So the attempt to interpret is an attempt to look for a translation. I describe this as uh, we, uh, with our finite powers, are built for occupancy of a certain scale of things in the universe. Mm. And if you, if you were to take, if you had a Star Trek beam machine and you could beam up, um, you know, a, a, a South American um, from the Amazon jungle, mm. let's say, who had never been in a library before and beam him down into this room with all these lovely books, why would he think that they were individual objects, not just one long coloured thing? Mm. Well, until he started to interact with these objects, his ontology is flexible. I mean, how, how he carves up the world is going to depend a lot on his pre-existing conceptual scheme mm. until it's modified by, by experience. Now, this shows you that with respect to any domain, how you divide it up is a function of utility, yeah. conceptual utility. And this this is why the conceptual scheme we have at this level of experience is always going to be inadequate to really express or explain what's happening at some other level. And the, the, the quantum level, you know, here we, here we have a, a really interesting, different but interesting problem, which is that the quantum level is probably not the ultimate level. Maybe the ultimate level is the string level or something. Mm. And yet, thinking in terms of, of the quantum level 
we have applications like quantum computers, for example, and so on, which are very powerful. Mm. So, yeah. so even if it is not the ultimate layer of reality, it's nevertheless enough of a slice of reality that making applications from yeah, it. It works. Yeah, it in, works. In that sense. But then so does our classical uh, yeah. interpretation work. Mm. So um, here, here what, what you're beginning to see is that there's no question of there being some ultimate level of reality, but that everything is reality. And if everything is reality, then in a sense, nothing is, <laughs> except how we're thinking about it. Not, not, this is not new age. This is not consciousness. This yeah. is not idealism. It's just, it's just a recognition of the fact that what we have are a lot of discourses. In fact, I suppose if you, if you were to appeal to an idea in the philosophical tradition that's closest to this, it's Carnap's idea that ontologies are always theory relative. Mm. Carnap, yeah. yeah. Wow, this is so fascinating. We could talk so much about it, but now I'd like to talk a little about, bit about your book, uh, History of Philosophy. Yeah. Um, I mean, you, you, you've written this book covering all of philosophy on a global scale. It's not like Russell's Western philosophy. You, you really treat all philosophy. I mean, first of all, how did you... I mean, still, you had to make some choices. How do you manage to, 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 to define the field that you wanted to work on? Mm -hmm. Well, look, first, it has to be admitted that the book is mainly about Western philosophy. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm uh, not an expert uh, or scholar in Indian, um, Chinese or Arab Persian philosophy. But it's in there. In the yeah, it's, it's in there. I mean, and, and in fact, I have had, uh, I've got some background in, in those in various ways, uh, in, enough at any rate that it's, it's more than merely amateur mm -hmm. interest or knowledge about it. Um, Indian philosophy, the Indian philosophical schools are very close in their, uh, in their interests um, and ideas to quite a lot of what happens in Western metaphysics and, and epistemology. Mm. Uh, of course, the Indian traditions, all of them, are soteriological. They're all thinking about ways of of escaping from the illusory world which causes so much suffering and so on. But uh, the epistemology metaphysics that goes along with that is very interesting and in many ways very, very familiar. So concepts of perception of causality and uh, individuality, the idea of, of properties and substances uh, um, and so on, the... the Uh, very idea of, of knowledge and the security of knowledge claims you know it's all it's all there and very familiar the confucian tradition of course is mainly a socio-political uh, view mm. about the nature of the good society and how it should be achieved uh, mainly on the basis of a moral trickle-down effect from the example given by the ruler and the uh, importance of um, uh, obedience the you know filial structure um with a premise that fundamentally human nature is benevolent and, and that we are actually interested in one another's welfare and so therefore it's possible to create the good society. The Arab-Persian tradition, of course, is the preserver and transmitter and contributor to of the almost lost tradition of Greek philosophy. Mm. So, what, so once again, if you know something about the Greek tradition of philosophy, then a lot of what uh, the... Um, Arab-Persian writers. Notice I call them Arab-Persian, not Muslim, because not all of them writing in Arab, Arabic and Persian were Muslims. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> uh, and those who contributed really, really seriously to the study of and transmission of Aristotle, for example, yeah. 
Their Muslim faith had very little to do with that. So, <coughs> anyway, so that that fascinating to do that and to um, see see the crossovers and the influences. But most of it is is Western philosophy. Mm. And I made two decisions. The first was to tell the orthodox story, the story which the, the Greeks themselves, Aristotle and the doxographic tradition afterwards, had told about their own history of philosophy. They nominated Thales as the first philosopher. They picked out the, the leading, most interesting figures like Parmenides and Heraclitus and the atomists. I mean, Aristotle wrote a whole book about the atomists, which unfortunately lost. Mm. Um, the doxographic tradition for a thousand years after Plato uh, looked at uh, the um, pre-Socratics and Plato and Aristotle just as we do now, picking them out as the, the great mountain peaks in, in the landscape. And of course, because um, the Epicurean Stoic schools, ethical schools, became so influential in the Hellenic and Roman periods uh, that we know and have uh, you know, access to um, th those traditions through their great influence. Mm. I mean, Stoicism was the ethical outlook of educated Romans for half a millennium, you know, before Christianity became the official religion of the Roman Empire in the late fourth century. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, that, that's well-received, uh, well-settled. Then I'm afraid we have to leap um, more than a thousand years of Christian hegemony over thought. Although there, there are some very interesting um, figures, you know, or um, Augustine is one, uh, Aquinas, uh, Anselm, mm. some of the... Uh, Thomas Aquinas. Some yeah. of the scholastics. Until we get to the beginning of, of modern philosophy, Descartes, Locke, Buckley, Hume, Spinoza, Leibniz. I mean, the, the, these are, are names which stand out because of their impact and because of what their successes in the tradition felt they had to address, they had to respond to. Mm. So the philosophical tradition, in a way, writes itself. So that from, from the Thales point up to now, that's one way that the tradition unfolds. The other way is this. When we now look back across the history of philosophy, given that philosophy meant everything, so the predecessors, our predecessors in the philosophical tradition were interested in all sorts of things, astronomy and physics and mm. history and you know, psychology, anything you could think of. And that tradition, bit by bit, gave birth more and more to uh, the natural sciences in the 16th and 17th century, mm. psychology in the 18th century, sociology and linguistics in the 19th century, um, you know, big contributions to computing and cognitive science in the 20th century. So philosophy is very productive, very fruitful. It gives birth to disciplines which can become autonomous and have their own methodology and set of interests. But the core problems in metaphysics, logic, epistemology, ethics, political philosophy, aesthetics, and in understanding the history of philosophy itself, because that's very important, so we don't make, you know, keep making mistakes, but we learn from our predecessors. That is a, a lens, a telescope, that we can look through, back through the tradition of human thought to those strands which are the antecedents of our problems today, to the, the things we're interested in today. Mm. like the case law, you might say, of our problems today. So if you're writing a history of philosophy now and you ask yourself, what is the history of philosophy? It can't be the history of all thought. 
even though philosophy was all thought. Mm. So what, what are the things that philosophers today are still working on that they were working on in the time of Plato and Parmenides and mm. Thales? And let us look at the, the development of that through time, and that is the history of philosophy. That's a wonderful way of seeing it. Uh, but you also discuss, like, for example, Indian antique naturalistic philosophy, yeah. which is, I think, not very well known today because people think of Indian philosophy like, you know, Buddhism or some kind of New Age interpretation of... Uh, but there was, as I understand it, a strong tradition of naturalistic philosophy. Yeah, very much so, yeah. Uh, tell us a little bit about that. Okay, well, uh, firstly, most of the, of the philosophical schools of India, of the Indian tradition, which divide into two, the orthodox and the heterodox, the astika and the nastika, okay? Mm -hmm. And um, most of them were non-theistic, Mm. They, were, they were not religions at all. They, people talk about the Indian religions. They don't realize that what's, what's uh, known as the Hindu synthesis is relatively late. So about, you know, about the time of, the, of Rome, you know, about the first century BC and thereafter is when the Hindu synthesis and all the different local superstitions and religions of the ordinary people started to coalesce into a set of traditions and uh, great works of literature like the Mahabharata with the Bhagavad Gita in it um, and then the transmission of the Upanishads which are also about contemporary in a way with the pre-Socratic philosophers and, mm. and uh, Socrates. And, and, and Buddha, right? And the Buddha there, yeah. yeah. So, uh, in fact, Confucius, the Buddha and Socrates are all yeah. you know, near contemporaries. But those uh, early schools of the, the Indian tradition, they were non, most of them were non-theistic. And um, they addressed themselves to questions about the, the nature of reality, which was, you know, sort of interestingly highly skeptical about the nature of perceived phenomenal reality. Indeed, the soteriological aspect of them, that, that's the aspect of them which shows you what you need in order to escape the cycle of rebirth and therefore escape suffering, which is the great ambition of all the, of all the schools, because all the schools agreed on this point, mm -hmm. that uh, um, uh, Maya, the, you know, the veil of illusion, is, is, is what we are possessed of. And desire, attachment, those sorts of things which we are familiar with from the Buddhist tradition. Um, but, but, you know, the, the aspects of this were themes for the, for, for the schools. But in the development of, of thinking in this way, they had to come up with views about the nature of reality. If you've got an argument which says that phenomenal reality isn't real, it's illusory, then you're doing metaphysics. And then how do we know that? And, and on what basis do we justify some beliefs which ob obviously enough in the course of experience are more secure than other beliefs. You know, how do you do that? Well, to see a fire, you know that there is a fire. To see smoke, well, to give you the belief that there is a fire. To be told that there is a fire mm. by an honest person is better than to be told there is a fire by a dishonest person. So you've got gradations yeah. of epistemological security and so on. And they address all these in, in a very interesting way. So this, this is smart stuff. It's good stuff. It's really, really interesting. There are many interesting parallels which you know, prompt the question, was there some connection? Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, yeah, and and w w there is some evidence, some reasonable evidence that Pyrrho, one of the, you know, with his version of skepticism, not the academic skepticism of Plato's academy, 
but Peronian skepticism is very, very like a sort of Jainism view of that, of, you know. So they might have communicated. And well, there, there, there is a thought, shared. because it's said of Pyrrha that he was with the armies of Alexander and mm. went to the as far as uh, the Indus River, you know, so mm. might very well have met the gymnosophists. They were certainly known about in, in uh, later antiquity. But would you say that there are any knowledge from these Indian ancient philosophy that is could um, give us something new that we that we couldn't find in, in the Western philosophy tradition? Did they bring something new to the table? Not that that I've seen myself. I, I remember um, some years ago, but back in the 90s, I edited for Oxford University Press two very big volumes of uh, introductory material for philosophy. The first was called uh, a guide, philosophy, a guide through the subject. The second one was called further through the subject. Mm -hmm. And that second volume had all the more advanced topics in, in philosophy, like philosophy of mathematics and, and mm. so on. And in that second volume, I commissioned a, um, a section on Indian philosophy. Now, the sections, these are big books, and, and the sections in them are sort of 20,000, 25,000 words. They're small books, you know. I commissioned this, this book on Indian philosophy. And the, the man who wrote it uh, and I had a lot of discussion and contact and, uh, about, um, you know, what to include and, and how to describe these traditions and to do it in a very clear and succinct way. But w with the, the special um, point of making connections wherever we could make them in, in order to give people a handhold mm. uh, on what was, was happening in the, in the thinking of the Indian philosophers. And in that, that process, because one is always looking for that new brilliant idea that nobody's ever thought of in the Western tradition and would really be mm. illuminating. And I have to say, although a lot of it was very familiar in the sense that they were dealing with problems that we that recognized as genuine philosophical problems, the kinds of answers that they came up with were sometimes very unsatisfactory, like, for example, the way they... they um, categorized the, the properties of things and that it was very you know difficult to quite see quite how one could make sense of that now there maybe if you were able to dig into that and if you had a better grasp of sanskrit or pali or you know mm. the the original language in which it was written and you could make finer discriminations conceptually of what was being argued you might find something that we've missed in the western tradition mm. At least from, from the relatively superficial level, I didn't see anything standing out that, that rang all alarm mm. bells. Mm. Mm. Okay. Okay, there is so much I could ask, but we, <laughs> we have to uh, come to the end quite soon. But I have one final question. That is, today it seems to be a divide between what we call analytical philosophy and continental philosophy. What what is that divide according to you, and uh, should it be a divide, or is it <clears throat> is it a problem that we have created in philosophy that shouldn't be there? Yes, so I think that the very phrase "continental philosophy" itself is a little bit um, misleading. Anyway, it's just a, an accident that some of the people, like Sartre and Heidegger and people like that, were writing in French and German. 
uh, one or two, and maybe in Spanish, Italian, but main, mainly French and German. Uh, so continent of Europe, and and that was just a a way of of scooping them up into the same net. Mm. But actually, what's what's really interesting is this: that Husserl and uh, Heidegger and Sartre, in his uh, you know Lettre de Néon, Melo um, Ponti, I think th- those figures, Jaspers maybe. Those, those figures, the first half of the 20th century, were doing things that were agnate to, that, that is, you know, cousins of things that would be familiar to people who studied the history of philosophy uh, from Thales right up to uh, um, Hegel, Schopenhauer, mm. Mm. Nietzsche. But there were just the beginnings in the first part of the 20th century of a, of a difference, of, of a Hegelian-Nietzschean line going off in one direction and a British empiricist uh, Cartesian kind of line, Leibnizian, going off in the other direction. Just beginning. After the Second World War, second half of the 20th century, philosophy in French and German, in the European languages, sort of burst into a whole range of things. Everything from psychoanalysis to film studies to history of ideas to you name it, is called philosophy. Mm. Why not? It doesn't matter because it's, it's um, you know, thoughtfulness and, and inquiry and discussion and digging into these different things. And anybody who does this in the continental tradition is a philosopher. You know, they're all, everybody uh, is described as a philosopher, no, 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 matter what, no matter which bit of the intellectual field they're working in. Mm-hmm. And that seems to me to be absolutely fine and maybe a very, very good thing that, that the original great diversity of philosophy being interested in everything is sort of coming back into the picture because analytic philosophy, which is the tradition that I was bred up in and have taught and written about mainly, is very specialised, very mm. technical, mm. very deep. It requires um, quite a special kind of mind, uh, and quite a lot of hard work, and you, you have to have done a lot big apprenticeship to be able to be involved in it. Uh, and it's, it therefore excludes, it's not a, a philosophy that's open to the, to the public, unfortunately, it seems mm. to me. It's not a philosophy that's open to the public. Whereas Derrida, Foucault, and you know, Deleuze, and all, all these people, they, you know, the general public would be interested in what they're, what they're doing and saying. And that's how it should be. I mean, go back to Hume and Descartes, admittedly not Kant. You know, Kant is a, is a specialist. But Hume was writing for interested people. Mm. So was Descartes, you know. So they, you know, so was Aristotle, I suppose, and Plato. Anybody who was interested could come along, so to speak. Although Plato did say, "Don't come and study philosophy unless you know maths." <laughs> That's a good point. Uh, wow, this is such a fascinating subject. Final question: Who would be your absolute favorite philosopher through the history? And it's actually two questions. Who is the worst philosopher? <laughs> well, now, to the first of, of, uh, of those questions, I get asked it a lot, and I always say the same thing in reply, which is that uh, Parnassus is not a peak but a plateau. That's to say there are many, many favorites, many people I've learned from, many people I admire, whether or not I agree with them. Um, uh, and so it is hard to pick out just one person. But if I'm allowed to pick out a little first team, so to say, sure. I would say that uh, uh, Aristotle, uh, Kant, um, 
for for philosophical power, for mental power, I suppose you, you might say. Kant, I'm, I'm very influenced by because I think he's right. Okay. Uh, and and uh, I mean not 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 in detail, but but he, uh, he in principle he's he's right. Mm. Uh, I'm by Russell not only because of his uh, um, effort, because he tried again and again and again to base science on an empirical foundation and failed ultimately. It's a very interesting. <laughs> it's a very interesting fact about Russell. If you look at his book, his last major philosophical book was called Human Knowledge, Its Scope and Limits. Mm. Now, in the first edition of that book, on page nine, which is in the preface, he talks about Kant as having committed a Ptolemaic counter-revolution in human thought by putting the human mind back at the center of the universe. So a Ptolemaic counter-revolution. Go to about two-thirds of the way through the book, I can't remember the page offhand now, <laughs> to his postulates of thought, where he says, we must know some things a priori, otherwise experience is not possible. Mm. Now that sentence is pure Kant. We must know some things a priori, mm. or experience is not possible, knowledge is not possible. And he calls them the postulates, the a priori postulates of science. It's like the axioms of mathematics. Yes, yes, yes. Mm. So he had tried, right from uh, our knowledge of the external world and, uh, you know, the, this book that he wrote in 1914 or something, um, Problems of Philosophy, uh, his work in the 1920s, his logical atomism work in the which he wrote in prison during the First World War, because he was, mm. you know, uh, all that work was an attempt to to show how you could get secure empirical foundations for science, and by human knowledge, he'd realized it was not possible without a priori principles. Now that's a very very interesting result. It's a kind of defeat, uh, in one way. You can't you can't do it. You can't reduce physics to uh, sense experience, which is, you know, what, what he was trying to do earlier on. But even if his philosophical trajectory was ultimately a failure, it's the kind of good failure. It's like, it's like scientific work which shows that something, some hypothesis is wrong. That's mm. a result in science. Yeah, yeah, of course, yeah. So, so in a way, it's a result. But he made that great effort. Mm. He made that great effort. But he also committed himself as a thinking man, as an intellectual, as a philosopher, to many, many other concerns, yeah. political, social, moral. Exactly. You know, he, he, he was a, a contributor and in a way that anybody who has the talent and the ability to do it should do it. So I admire him for that. You know, it's fascinating. That was what caught my attention as a teenager when I read Russell, that was that he was a philosopher who also took part in the society discussions. Yeah. I was so fascinated by that. Yeah. So I, yeah. But he was an, uh, 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 engagé, you yeah. know, long before Sartre and people like that were yeah. engagé. He was doing that, standing for parliament uh, for women's votes for women yeah. back in 1910, 1912. Yeah. Yeah. And he arranged the... Uh, the Russell Tribunal, I think it's called, right, on yeah. the Vietnam War yeah. in Stockholm. Here that's, in Stockholm. Right, that's right, yeah. That's right. So who, who is the worst philosopher? <laughs> who is the worst philosopher? Oh, dear, dear. In your opinion. <clears throat> I don't know. I suppose the very worst philosopher is unknown because he's so bad, or she. <laughs> I don't know. But, okay. Uh, who, if, who, who's the one who's had the most malign influence on philosophy, you might say? And who was most wrong also? Who do you disagree with the most? 
That's very hard to say, isn't it? <laughs> now, I'm going to say something absolutely heretical and scandalous, okay? Okay. Uh, about a philosopher whose intellect, whose contribution, uh, whose philosophical insight is magnificent, who may be single-handedly the most copious uh, philosopher of them all, but who, because he was such a terrible fascist, and who ended up uh, at the end... Um, with a, a, a very kind of stupid proto-theistic metaphysics. And that's Plato. <laughs> oh, my God. Okay. Uh, so he, he had bad effect on philosophy. No, I don't think he had a bad effect on philosophy. I mean, Whitehead is right to say that he, you know, philosophy is footnotes to, to, to Plato. I mean, uh. right in a figurative kind of sense. Uh. Uh, no, no, there are many good things and many wonderful insights. And, of course a wonderful writer of, mm, of Greek yeah. and a brilliant, brilliant, brilliant mind and a wonderfully inclusive mind. I don't like his politics. I don't like the, the you know, the, the republic mm. of uh, the ideal that, that he comes up with. And I find very disappointing if, if the chronology of the Platonic corpus is, is right and there are people who push back at it and so on. But the Timaeus and the laws, the, these very late things, but especially the Timaeus, which is the one dialogue of, of Plato's that was known was was never not known. So even though so much else of his work was lost for many centuries, the Timaeus was always known. And it had a very malign influence because it prompted the... You know, the, the, the Christians, uh, after they became the official religion of the Roman Empire, mm-hmm. um, but because the Bible tells you to give away all your money and make no plans for the future and repudiate your family if they don't like what you're doing, and they would if you give away all your money, you know, if they do... <laughs> Because that's not a livable ethics, they had, to, they had to get ethics. And to get ethics, they needed some metaphysics as well to explain the ethics. So they imported pretty well wholesale into Christianity Greek humanistic ethics. Mm, mm. And they had to bring into it uh, uh, some metaphysics as well because, after all, the early Christians were uh, uh, of the Jewish faith. Um, many, many Jews did not believe in the resurrection of the dead or the life after death. Um, St. Paul said that uh, when you die, you sleep in your grave and then the second coming will happen and you will rise up out of your grave with a new body. I always make a joke at this point saying that I want a six-pack and a tan when that happens, you know, with my new body. But then it turned out that when, when they became the official religion and they dug up the dead martyrs and saints, they had rotted in the grave. And remember, yeah. St. Paul said the saints will see no corruption. They won't rot in the grave. So this was terrible. So they needed a new theory to explain it. Where did they get it? Neoplatonism. From Plato, yeah. the idea of the immortality of the soul and the separation of the soul from the body, which the Jews the, 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 of the early Christians didn't believe in, but they started to believe in it when it became useful. So there it was in Plato that they could make use of. So in that sense, it's a malign. I see. Uh, Very interesting. And as I understand it, in the Indian naturalistic philosophy tradition, you didn't separate body and soul, right? Well, there was no body. The body is an illusion. Okay. So there's mm. just a, there is this desiring, willing, attached uh, kind of self, which isn't really a, a true thing either, because really it's not distinct from, you know, the 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 what exists, the, the universe, Brahman or something. Mm-hmm. Um, and and therefore, but by the way, I mean, you know, Indian philosophy is very Gnostic. 
It's about knowledge. So when you know the truth about reality, you cease to be attached to this world and to mm. desires and to the passing pleasures of this world. And this this is why, uh, you know, they think about the transition in life. You, you're, a, you're a pupil and then you're a householder. This is when you marry and have children. But then at a certain age, I think the, the age they had was 48 i don't quite know why it seems an arbitrary number but you can become a forest dweller you and your wife can go off and live in the forest and start to detach yourself and then you can become a a, a sadhu uh you know give up everything give up your wife goes back to her family or even women give up their husbands and become you know female sadhus mm. must be a female version of that word give up everything give up all attachment all desire mm. and you just ready yourself to uh, die, hoping that you will reincarnate to something closer to the ultimate extinction. Mm. Nirvana means like the blowing out of a candle, that you will become extinct, perhaps nothing at all, or perhaps at any rate, nothing self-conscious. Fascinating. That will be the extinction of this part of the session. <laughs> Professor Anthony Graylings, thank you so much for talking to me in this podcast. Thank you, Christine.